Hello and a warm welcome. I am Armin Trost, Professor for Organizational Behavior at the Furtwangen University in Germany and this is my course on Social Research Methods. Okay, welcome back. Today we're going to talk about sampling. Sampling is another very important field in social research method. When we do a study, when we observe or we survey people, subjects, we almost never, or very, very, very rarely, we do a total sample, meaning we're asking all people. Uh, we very often pull a sample. So here are some fundamental terms that you need to understand. First, there is a population. That's an important term. Who is the population? The population uh, is the group of subjects on which you want to generalize your outcome. So to give you an example, very often in psychology, we, we just do an experiment, let's say with 60 people, but at the end, we want to draw a conclusion about whom? About human beings. All that have ever existed, all that exist, and all that will ever exist. So the people, the human beings, that's in this case our population. Sometimes you want to predict how an, an, an election will, uh, 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 to what, to what uh, the results an election will lead, you want to predict the outcomes of a, of a, of a political election then the population is not the world, not all human beings, but maybe all those who are allowed to vote in a particular nation. Right? Sometimes you want to say something about all the students in your university or all the citizens in your city. Then all the citizens in your city is the population or all the students in your university is the population. So... A very important question in your study is, who is your population? That's, 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 uh, that's very, very important. Yeah? What is your population? I will come to this point in a minute. Okay? So now what we do is we, we pull a sample. We, we will not survey, we will not observe all the people. When we want to predict the outcome of an election, we will talk maybe to 1,000 or 10,000 people. And that's then our sample And here we have the entities, yeah, the entities that really actually take part in our study. Then we do an estimation of the outcome based on the sample, and then we generalize for the entire population. That's an extremely smart idea. It's wonderful. Yeah? I mean, everything we know in social science All the evidences that we have in social science, I would really say all, maybe not all, I mean, 99.9% is based on samples. All. <laughs> yeah, so let's, let's have it more specifically. What, uh, how to, I, I, I puzzled with how I can explain this to you. And I, uh, what I did I, is I created an artificial population, an artificial population of 1,470 entities or units. 
And let's say these units, they can have different conditions. Uh, they could vary between zero and six, okay? So, and uh, also in my lectures, I show uh, a picture of this population. You see these different entities uh, with the different values. And the question is, hmm, what is the average? Uh, how many zeros do we have? How, how many ones, two, three, four, five, six do we have in this population? We want to describe this population with regards to these zero to six, right? So, so uh, what I then do very often is I just go into this population, into this, uh, into this picture, and I just pull a few out of this, yeah, right? Just a few, maybe 20, just randomly, just take 20, and I know the real value, I know the results, I know this population exactly. That's the wonderful thing about this simulation. I know the truth. But now I do my estimation just based on the 20. And uh, you see it here on this picture. This is uh, uh, just uh, a random sample. And, uh, and the outcome based on this sample is uh, 2.8. Uh, I know the truth is 3.01. So there is an error of minus 0.21. It's, it's, is that much? That's the sample error. The sample error is the error that you find between what you estimate and the truth. That's the sample error, right? the sampling error. Or I can also pull 50 people, which is more, and now, oh, the error gets even bigger. Probability is high that the error gets smaller. Or I can take a a random sample of 200 out of 1,417. Now I have a, a sampling error of just close to zero. You, know, you see, also in this picture with a distribution, you see I, I come damn close to reality. It's, it's amazing. Right? So it's just an example. Yeah? And as you will see, the, 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 the bigger the sample, the, the, the smaller is the sampling error. But you really, you really can draw a conclusion about the entire population just based on, on a sample. It's, a, it's wonderful. Yeah. So a question really is, as I already pointed out, in your study, who is your population and who are your entities? Who is your population? On whom do you want to generalize? In the end, who is that? Is it all human beings, all women, all countries, all students? What is it? All, all, all Germans, all universities, all car drivers? Who is it? So, so and, and at the end, the sample you, 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 you take must be representative to, to your population. That's, that's the idea, yeah? But who are your entities? Who are your entities? So, uh, in the last episode, we were talking about the gender equality paradox, you might remember. And, and, and here, the entities were not people, the entities were countries. Right? So, sometimes the entities are companies, sometimes the entities are cities, sometimes the entities are universities. Who are the entities? So, the, the real subjects in your, in your study. So, both things have to be clear, the population and the entities. Individuals, groups, companies, countries, economies, rats, dogs, or whatever. <laughs> be clear about this. Yeah? And every single identity must be identifiable. What does that mean? You must know who takes part in your study. When you do a study in the field, by the way, that's very often not so clear. Because you might, you might observe people in the street you might observe people in a restaurant. You might observe people in a supermarket. Okay, so you might observe some people and, and look at their behavior. Okay, 
And what, what is with all the others? Don't they, don't they take part in your study? No, no, really not. So, okay, who, who takes part in your study? So, so for instance, you, you, might, you might generate a situation in a supermarket, right? And then you look, okay, who will... Let's just pull an idea from the air. Uh, you, 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 you create a situation where somebody needs help, let's say, okay? And then you want to see how many people will help. Is it the older people, the younger people? Maybe that's a stupid idea, but that's for the sake of explanation, that's okay. So you want to see how many people will help. Okay, so who are your entities? It's tricky. Those who do not help, they, are they also part of your sample or not? It's difficult. Okay, just as a side comment here. Okay, so that's enough for the moment. You understood population, entity, population, sample, generalization. So that's, that's, that's the idea. Okay, so now we come to the question, how can you create a sample? And just walk through different methods real quick. Um, just to, to get a feeling uh, about the differences of techniques that, that exist. And um, one well, the best technique for for random sample is what we name the simple random sample. Uh, and as I mentioned already uh, earlier, I, I, I produced this series in the midst of the corona crisis now in, in, the, in spring uh, 2020. And so it's wonderful, and it's not wonderful. It's not a wonderful. But what's wonderful is that uh, we pretty much talk much about sampling in, in the public media because what, what we want to know and still do not know is how many people are uh, infected. And the best thing you could do is simply draw a sample uh, in your country or even in the world. Just pull a sample. And then you test these people. And maybe in a country like Germany, it's, it's, it's more than 80, 80 million people. Uh, I learned that a sample of 20,000 would be enough. And then we could have a pretty close guess of how many people are infected. Okay, these 20,000 people or 30,000 people, how, how do you identify these 30,000 people? The best thing you could do is you have a list of all 80 million people maybe an Excel list or something. And then you sort them randomly and then you take the upper 20,000. That would be the perfect way. Really random. So this is called a simple random sample. Simple because you simply pick the people randomly. But that technique does not, is not named simple random sample because practically it's so simple. If it would be so simple to pull a random sample in a country... We already would have done that. That's extremely difficult because nobody has this list of 80 million people. Do we have it? Maybe somewhere. Okay, maybe. It's very, very hard to be done. Very hard to be done. Very often. Pull a random sample of the world. Who? Do we, do, does any, is there anywhere a list about all the, I don't know, 8, eight billion people? Probably not. So what we very often is we use a stratified random sample. What is a stratified random sample is you, you pull uh, a random sample stepwise. So let's assume we want to do, we, we really want to tr uh, pull a sample of, um, of students. 
all the students in your country. So what you might do is you, you, you have a list of all the university. Okay, that's doable in the country. You have all, a list of all the university. It might be 200, 300, 6,000 universities, depending on the size of your country. So this list exists. From this list, you, draw, you pull a random sample of, let's say, 20 universities. Okay, you go to these 20 universities. You look at, okay, what faculties do we have in these different universities? Okay, that's doable. And then again, in every university, you randomly pull uh, two faculties. Okay, so now you have the two faculties per, per university. Now you go into these different faculties and say, okay, we have uh, the first semester, second semester, and so on. Now we pull a random sample of the semesters. And now we have the groups of students. And then from the groups of students, again, we randomly select 10. So in every stepwise step, in every stepwise step, we pull always randomly. So in the end, what you get is random. This is a, a practical way of doing this. Or multi-stage cluster sampling. Cluster simply means that, let's say you want to draw a, um, a sample in a country from all the citizens. You, you first define some clusters, what we name. You say, okay, let's have all people here in this region and in this region and in this region and in this region, right? So you, you pull clusters. So you, you focus on those and ignore the others, right? And then in these clusters, you, you again define some clusters. So that sounds, the, the idea is pretty much the same with a stratified random sample I've just explained, but it's, 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 it's more based on, on, on uh, clusters. And there's another smart technique, uh, which is uh, in business very relevant. We call it the PPS sample, or PPS stands for probability proportional to size. Probability proportional to size. Which probability? The probability that you are chosen as being part of a sample. So a very nice example is, uh, let's say in your country you want to do a study where companies are the entities. Okay, you want to ask CEOs of different companies in your country. So in your country, you have big players. You might have a Google-like company with ten thousands of people, tens thousand, uh, hundred thousands of people. Um, you, but you also have the small businesses. You have companies that exist of one person. It's also a company. So your Siemens, yeah, Siemens has more than 400,000 employees. It's a big company, but also this, uh, it's a company, one company, and also the, the Döner shop around next corner here. It's a, it's a, it's a company, two employees, 440,000 employees. So it's a good idea when you do a study about companies where you want to ask the CEOs that... Uh, the probability that you pull a company is proportional to its size, PPS. Okay? So if you have a company that has, let's say, 10 employees, and there is a company that has just one employee, the probability that you pull the company with 10 employees is 10 times higher than the probability that you pull the company with one employee. Okay? It's just to make sure that the bigger company have a higher probability that they are pulled into the into the sample. That, that could make sense. Huh? Very smart idea, I would say. Uh, 
What we very often have in practice, also when students do, do stu uh, studies, even in psychology, you know, even when you look at studies done by Nobel, Nobel Prize laureates like Daniel Kahneman, I mean, they've done studies based on students. Which students? Yeah, the students of the faculty, right? But they are, they are special. I mean, they are, they are Western, they are educated, they are informed, they are rich, they are democratic. Weird. Yeah. Western, educated, informed, rich, and democratic. Yeah, we do a study based on those smart students, yeah. And we generalize on the world, on human beings per se. But we have the sample. Why? Because it's there. <laughs> you have the students in your classroom. So you don't pull a random sample. This is what we name a convenience sample, or sometimes we also name it an ad hoc sample. We just take those people into our study which are available. That's all. Is that okay? We will see. We'll discuss this in a few minutes. Snowball sampling, also a nice idea. Uh, we do this sometimes in, in, in social media. So you ask some people to, to take part in a study, let's say in a, in, a, in a survey, and then you ask these people, please share this survey with others. Right? And then they again share it with others. So we have an exponential growth of participants in your study. Uh, it's very smart because you... You, you could reach a lot of people in a short period of time. The problem, though, is that you might end up in, a, in a, what we name a filter bubble. Yeah? The people that share content are similar to, to themselves. So it might be that your survey is just shared within a closed community, that, which all have the same thinking and the same opinions. And so filter bubbles, uh, echo chamber, this is what you might, might get then. But, okay, be nice. A very smart way of sampling is what we name quota sampling. That's, that's spot and something that you really should know because it's also very practical and very, very reasonable. Quota sampling. Quota sampling means that it's not a, it's not a probability sample. So uh, it's not that you do anything randomly. It's that you, you, you create, you carefully create your sample. You, you build it, right? And, and, and uh, there, is a, there is a nice example that goes back to uh, a man called Gallup. Gallup, uh, I, I think he was the, he was the, the inventor of this, this idea. Gallup, at his time, I think it was in the, in the 30s, last century, but I'm not, I'm not so sure. Gallup was the founder also of the Gallup company, uh, leading a leading uh, firm, Oh, that's doing uh, opinion polls and all the like, an American company. And Gallup is the founder, and Gallup is the name of this company. And what he did was amazing at that time. He was a young social scientist, and he was capable of having the most precise prediction of the outcome of political election. And everybody was surprised. How did he do this? Right? And what he did was he did quota sampling. What is that? Quota sampling is... And I'd like to explain it based on an example. Let's say, really, you want to predict how people vote on the next election, okay? This is what you want to predict. So the first thing before you create your sample is you, you, you make up your mind and you just theoretically think, okay, what determines voting? What are maybe democratic, demographic factors 
that somehow affect whether in the states you, you, you vote for the Democrats or the Republicans. Okay? And when you think about this, I mean, you, you come to very simple conclusions in a minute. You know that the age has an effect. Yeah? Younger people vote differently than, than older people. You know that gender has an effect. Yeah? Women have different political preferences than men to, to, to a certain extent. So Social status, of course. I mean, the rich vote differently than the poor. Or the family status. If you are a single, uh, you, you might have different political preferences than when you feed a, a, a family of six. Yeah? You know? uh, also, the region. I mean, do you live near the coasts, yeah, west, east, or are you somewhere in the center? So, we know this. We know this. And so, different factors have an effect on, on voting behavior. So, if you know this, you can say, okay, let's build a sample that is representative, or we can also say that mirrors yeah, the structural composition of the population based on those relevant factors and let, let's 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 have a simple example here let's, from what i just said we can just pull out two factors uh, one maybe might might be gender okay male female uh, let's put it simple yeah uh, upper class middle class lower class okay so uh, first, we want to figure out, okay, how many people do we have? How many people are male? How many are female? So, And now I guess there are more, more women than men. But let's put it stereotypic uh, for the moment. Hope that's okay with you. Saying it's 50%, 50%. Okay. Half, half. Okay. And let's assume for the moment that we have 10% in the upper class, 70% of voters are in the middle class, 20% in the lower class. Okay, so and now let's assume we want to have 500 people in our sample. So, um, 500 people. So, what we want to do is that this 500 people in their structural composition should be equal to the structural composition in the population. We know that in the population, in the population, we have 50% men, 50% women. Okay, so let's have also 50% men, 50% women in our sample of the 500. So that's simple math. 250 men, 250 women. Okay, let's make sure that this is the case. And the same is what we do with the, with the classes. So let's have 10%. So 50 people are from the upper class, 350 people, 70% in the middle class, and in the lower class, 20%, 100 people. Okay, 50 people in the upper class, half women, half men, means 25 male, 25 men in the upper class. Let me just make it sure that our sample is combined in that particular way. Really, I mean, you can apply this for your stuff. And you want to do a little study about your university, yeah? and you say, okay, I mean, whatever you want to measure, there might be a difference between the engineering students and the social science students and the <laughs> students of whatever. So, and you want to draw a conclusion about the most students of your university, make sure that 
So first you have a look, okay, how many students do we have in these different faculties? And then in the end, make sure that in your sample, this structural composition is somehow mirrored. The same you can do with male students, female students, yeah? So you just mirror the population in your sample. That's a cool idea. So as you see, this is not about probability. It's not about randomly pull people. You combine these things. Okay. Now when it comes to sample, the question always that, com uh, that always comes up is the question of how big must the sample be? Yeah. Um, as I told you, the higher, the, the, the bigger the absolute sample is, the lower is the sampling error. That's, that's, that's the fundamental idea. Better have a big sample than a small sample. Okay? I mean, that's clear. Okay? Um, but that's not the only thing. It, it's, 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 by the way, it's, it's, not, it's not important how big your population is. <laughs> that's an interesting point. Whether your population are 8 billion or 8 million, it, it's, that, that is not the point here, really. Okay? That's not the point. Okay? Uh, what's the point is, is the distribution. Yeah? So if, if how heterogeneous is the parameter, the variable you want to estimate. Yeah? If, the, if the heterogeneity is high, then your sampling error is bigger. Okay? Okay, that's, that's, that's also clear. Uh, we know there are, we know in, in social science, in statistics, there are some statistical measures based on which you can calculate your sample size so that you, that you can minimize uh, the probability of your sampling error to an appropriate level. There are statistical techniques. Now, I tell you a little secret, and I should not do that as a, as a university teacher. In practice, you rarely do this. No. Really, I, you should, but depending on the purpose of your study, depending on the on the relevance of your study. If you have a huge budget, okay, you, you calculate how, how big must your sample size be. But in a in a practical study, in an organization maybe, yeah, you rarely do this statistical exercise. It's it's very often based on gut feeling. Okay, how many how big should the sample be? Hmm, 50 could be okay. No, 100 sounds better. Yeah, 100. 100 should be okay. Three. It feels good. <laughs> I must admit that when students ask me, Professor, how big must my sample be? I don't know, 50? 50. Is that doable? Okay. So it's very often a question of what is doable. It's a matter of resources very often. Yeah. Okay. In very often it's not, it's not just the case how big your sample is. The, the question is, is, is uh, who, whom in your sample will respond to your study? Yeah, that's that's very often uh, that's very often the bigger issue. Yeah, who will respond in your study? So the non-response, it's it's sometimes much more critical. Yeah, um, than than uh, than how big your sample is sample is in, in in the first place. Let's assume that you do a kind of survey. So so I, I give you I give you a little little example on this. Let's assume you you want to run a study that that measures that people's happiness in their in their in their romantic relation. Okay, let's have this stupid simple example. Okay, 
Um, you want to know how, how, how happy are people in their romantic relation. And you go for a, a snowball sample on social media. So you, you create your questionnaire and you share the link on social media and you ask respondents to, to share the link too so that you reach as much people as possible. Okay. Now, we know <laughs> that there is a relation between happiness in a romantic relation and the activity on social media. Uh, we know that the... the the more happy you are in a romantic relation, the less active you are on social media. So, so people who are very happy in their romantic relation, they will show a lower willingness to respond in your study or to share your study. And we also very know that very often singles know singles. <laughs> Married people, no married people. So there's another effect here. So as a consequence at the end, if this is all true, you will mainly reach uh, uh, people who are unhappy, in bracket, who are active on social media. And as a consequence, you completely underestimate people's happiness. Just because, just because you don't reach the happy ones. <laughs> The most stupid example for non-response is when you do a survey. <laughs> That's a very stupid example, but it's still nice. You do a survey about willingness to respond to a survey. Yeah? You ask the question, would you be willing to respond to a survey, yes or no? I mean, those who are not willing to respond to surveys will not even respond to that one. <laughs> so only those who respond who are actually willing to respond to surveys. So you completely overestimate the willingness to respond. So you got this example. You, 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 you got that entire thing, right? So what you do um, is the following. And I would like to share this with you based on an on a, on a, on example. Now let's talk about sampling effects. It's very, very important. Now, now things turn a little bit more intellectual. Let's talk about sampling effects. In early days in the United States, election forecasts have been done based on, on calling people on the phone. Can you imagine this? So you have the telephone book, this thick book at that time, and you say, okay, Go through the telephone book and somebody had to say, stop. Mm, stop. Okay, here, John Smith. Let's call John Smith. John Smith. Hello, Mr. Smith. Here is Gallup. <laughs> well, no, not Gallup. Another institute. Uh, and then John Smith is asked, okay, whom will, you, whom will you vote for? Democrats or Republicans? Okay, get response. Next one. So that was maybe in the 30s. Now, um, what you need to know is at that time, not everybody had a phone. You only could reach those who have a phone. Hmm, does that matter? Uh, it's not representative, right? Not at all. But at this point of time, that does not matter. I mean, very often subjects in psychological studies were by far from being representative for human beings. I mean, let's think of Skinner. I mean, he, he, done, he has done, or in the, the behaviorists at, at, uh, in total, they have done studies mostly on, based on rats. Rats are not human beings. 
really not. It did not matter so much. Yeah? For some reasons, I don't want to go into this now. But, but we, we, we realized for the moment, okay, in this study, the election forecast, you could only reach those who have a phone. Hmm. But now here comes. There might be a relationship between whether or not you have a phone and for whom you're going to vote. Why? Because who has a phone? Well, the rich one, right? Is it that the rich people vote differently than the poor people? Yes. Okay, now here's the problem. Okay, now here's the problem. The only people you reach are the rich ones. So, your result will not be representative. Absolutely not. Why? Because there is a relation between having a phone or not and for whom you vote. That's, that's the whole idea. Yeah? We know that those people in the middle or upper class rather tend to vote for, for the Democrats, as far as I can tell. So, the results for Democrats will be overestimated. Okay. So what you actually are doing, and that's and I would like to close with this. Sorry, now the, the most important term and the most important idea really comes at the end of this episode is whatever you measure, you you look at your sample and you ask yourself the question: is that sample representative compared to the population? Let's think of this example we just had. No, they are not. We only have those who have a phone. You do a study, you, want, you do a poll, you do a, a survey, and you go out on the street on a Wednesday afternoon at 3 p.m., and you ask random people on the street, okay, whom do you meet on the street at 3 p.m. on a regular Wednesday. Hmm, people who do not work at that time. Okay, right, because otherwise they would not be on the street. So they are not representative. Okay, so that's something you really have to keep in mind. Okay, in my study I only have rats. Are rats human beings? No! Okay? How does your sample differ from the population? That's the first question. And then, when you say, yes, they differ, and they always differ, almost always, then you think, how do they differ? In, 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 towards which categories, uh, variables, how do they differ from our population? So you think of these categories based on which your sample differs from the population. And now comes the next question. Do those categories somehow relate to what you want to measure? If that's the case, then you have a problem. Like we have done in our example just now. Okay, these people we reach, they only, are only those who have a phone. Okay, got it. 
Does having a phone relate to what we want to measure, voting behavior? Yes. Okay, now we have a problem. And, and now we have to think about, okay, what will be the effects then? Yeah. So this is something that you need to keep in mind. So not only with your own study, but maybe also with all those studies that, that you read, you, 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 you to carefully look at the study report and think, okay, who was the sample in that study? Hmm, does that sample differ in certain categories from the population? Yes, it does. We're only students, we're only Western students, uh, Western educated, informed, rich, and democratic. Hmm, okay, the fact that this is the case, that does that relate to what this study measured? Hmm, yes, it does, probably just based on my assumption. Okay, so I, we cannot gener generalize the outcomes to the population. Okay, now, here's an important term at the end of this episode. Whether or not we can generalize something to the population, that is something that we name external validity. Okay, so in the last episode we were talking about internal validity. This is external validity. To what extent can we really generalize our outcomes based on a sample to the entire population? And that's the golden question whenever it comes to sampling. Okay, so let's leave it to this and next time we're going to start with some statistics. Look forward to it. Okay, thanks for watching, thanks for listening. And see you next time.